Hello, it's uh, Tom Calvard here again. I thought I would do the next segment of the book, which will cover the introduction. The introduction isn't a particularly long part of the book, but I think in the spirit of covering each piece of it, um, I would do a short podcast episode on each piece um, and try to convey what things like the introduction contain in the in the book to give an indication. It's hard always to know what to put in an introduction, really, um, just to try and set the scene. I certainly talk about diversity as a fundamentally human experience, um, something we experience as human beings first and foremost, as well as being employees, professionals, managers, and occupying organizational roles. And the fact that we orient ourselves to people around us in our lives and maybe we perceive them as relatively similar or different to ourselves in profound respects and then I I sort of set this human experience against historical cultural and legal developments around inequalities discrimination struggles, voices, experiences, and how diversity has come to occupy an increasingly prominent space in public and corporate consciousness. Maybe not always accompanied by progress uh, or for the better, often accompanied by conflict and polarisation, but nevertheless questions about organising our differences into solidarities, relationships and new understandings. And there's something about this idea that difference is complex, diversity is complex, and it's an ongoing thing that we reorganize, we reorganize in an ongoing way in our societies and our places of work. So my main emphasis is just to recognize in this introduction that diversity is complex. It's complex in terms of its attributes, its operations, its relations to organisations, powerful actors, disadvantaged actors, different structures of social life and organisational life and the inequalities that are produced and reproduced over time. And I also draw on some very random examples from the media incorporated from a few years ago. So there's a small story that um, some people may remember at the time, although it's quite small in the big scheme of things, when Donald Trump first came into power as the president of the United States, and of course now he's just just left his his term as president of the United States. But his wife, Melania, made a speech to the Republican Party nationally, and it emerged in the media that there were allegations that she'd plagiarised the speech from a similar 2008 speech given by the previous First Lady, Michelle Obama. Whether or not she did plagiarise it uh, or not, somebody noted on social media uh, just an incredible comment about this story, and they said that, wasn't this ironic that Melania, a Slovenian immigrant with a strong accent, was supposedly regurgitating a black woman's speech to a room full of Republicans, many of whom believed black people and immigrants were ruining 
the country of the United States. So you can see even in these fleeting examples, there's a lot of hypocrisy, irony, um, and the backdrop of diversity is complex and it can take us by surprise and reveal lots of different things if we stop and, and look at it from a critical perspective. I also talk about news stories to do with racial microaggressions and everyday racism and how sometimes racism in a subtle everyday sense can be so difficult to spot we might almost confuse it with autism or a disability and this is what happened at Oxford University. It talked about racial microaggressions, the sort of casual everyday racism that um, you know manifests in conversations and behaviours like avoiding eye contact or not speaking with uh, people from diverse backgrounds as not necessarily indicative of racism, um, still making people feel uncomfortable maybe, but uh, actually also indicative of people um, disabled by autism or with, the, with an autistic impairment. And then finally I took Beyond the West about the example of Arab men living today in the Middle East and Africa um, and how you know many men are struggling in those countries to secure work and income and that they are potentially experiencing a crisis of masculinity but at the same time clinging to patriarchal attitudes that place them in a dominating position over families and workplaces and households and then you've got other factors around masculinity and gender in those sorts of environments, economic, cultural and political, maybe to do with um, attitudes of religious conservatism, a backlash against women's empowerment, other uh, gendered practices around harassment and violence and other roles of the West in NGO activism. So just to point out the complexity of some of these stories. And again, if you take the Lebanon, I also note stories like the fact that Lebanon appointed a man as its first ever women's affairs minister. And in Saudi Arabia, at around about the same time, a heroic young Saudi woman broke the gendered driving ban against women, placing restrictions on not allowing them to drive alone. A woman broke that ban to save a man's life by driving him to a hospital in an emergency. So you've got this media-rich environment with lots of complex, controversial, many-sided, many-faceted stories about diversity. And this is, in my introduction, why I argue that a critical perspective, however the reader of this book wants to understand that and value that, can be valuable at a general level. And I, I kind of think about what a critical perspective is. It can seem quite pessimistic at first, like it's saying that often organisations don't really know what they're doing, managers don't really know how to manage or are misguided in how they try to manage diversity. But it also can be more productive and creative. And one way in which I argue that that is the case is it allows us to think about work and organisation in more open-minded ways. So if we take the idea of an organisation, a narrow approach to organisation has often focused on multinationals, for-profit corporations, 
maybe offices and factories. But actually, a critical perspective often focuses on different kinds of organisations as well. Everything from grassroots movements to non-profit organisations to sweatshops to people working in poverty, people working in creative sectors and settings that may be a bit less traditionally organised in a corporate sense. So it's not just about the obvious versions of what an organisation is and what working life looks like. Organisations and work themselves, carried out by diverse people, can also take diverse forms. And some of those forms may be very valuable to those diverse people for securing an inclusive and more equal and fair future that will be supportive of human flourishing. And then I argue for various other benefits of a critical perspective and a critical approach. There's something about looking at things critically which appeals to me personally, but I hope will appeal to readers, many who may already have some critical sympathies. But for those that are less familiar with it, just the idea of looking at things from less obvious angles, essentially, doesn't always have to be negative, but there's an argument that some things are a bit neglected or underplayed, but are nevertheless very relevant and important. And in that sense, a critical perspective has a sort of natural sympathy with diversity. It's democratic, it's empowering, it raises our consciousness and our awareness of different viewpoints and experiences. My purpose is not to position myself as an expert in critical theory, some sort of niche philosophical scholar. I don't have uh, significant expertise in any particular critical body of work or philosophical thinker or theoretical position. And so any sort of technical mistakes I make that might irritate a purist are entirely my own. But the intention of the book is merely to expose people to the broad thrust of these perspectives and how they can be applied to diversity. In my previous uh, episode of this podcast, I talked about mainstream research and critical research and that it isn't necessarily a dichotomy or a binary, um, but most research falls maybe along a continuum with those points at the extremes. And I do assert that there is some polarisation between the two of them that in part had made this book worth writing. Often that the mainstream views tend to favour maths and science models um, in trying to ask questions and answer questions about diversity, whereas critical views will tend to draw in other influences around philosophy, arts and humanities um, and different interpretations from those points of view. I do try not to get bogged down in this issue. As many academics know, there are what we call paradigm wars. There are people coming, even within critical approaches or within mainstream approaches, there are people arguing about you know, these views of the world. The two cultures of science and literature as two sort of different ways of looking at the world. And we wonder why they can't be reconciled. But if you're an evidence-based person, then I would appeal to you on evidence-based grounds as well, just to at least recognise that a critical perspective on diversity offers a different kind of evidence, and so we should try and judge the evidence as it arises from these different perspectives.
I talk about the chapters of the book in overview, but I talked about that on my previous video, so I don't uh, on my previous podcast episode, so I don't need to to revisit that here. Um, but I make a few final points around how I chose to structure the book. I could have written a book about a particular type of diversity, which would have been a very reasonable and logical thing to do to talk about age or gender or race or ethnicity, and maybe to adopt a particular critical theoretical school to talk about feminism or anti-racism or post-colonialism or even psychoanalysis in terms of the unconscious forces and emotions and desires shaping our experiences of differences. But again, my broad aim was to look at examples of research from a variety of traditions and to try to argue for the merits of a critical perspective in general and a series of chapters that would offer a variety of critical perspectives. I talk about the importance, which I think anyone who reads books like this sometimes gives you feedback on the draft that you should include more examples, more international examples. And I've tried to include examples wherever possible where I do actually talk about the specific context. I think it's really important when you're talking about diversity, not just to make out that it's happening in this generic for-profit corporate corporation or some sort of traditional large organization, but actually to talk about the country, to talk about the sector, to talk about the people living the work and the employment day to day. Um, under a critical perspective, often sociologists will refer to this as the lived experience, something that more detached scientific perspectives can never quite get at as a form of evidence. So where possible, I tried to talk beyond North America, beyond Western Europe, and to recognise where I can elements of the global south and other parts of the world where diversity is still being experienced, um, but maybe in a non-traditional, non-corporate sense or, or through a different set of practices and stakeholder considerations. Often, of course, you cannot simply separate out different parts of the world, but diversity management spreads from the West to other parts of the world. And we might say that these practices colonise or are transferred to other countries where they don't necessarily fit the context. The human resource and managerial practices do not quite fit the different context. So I try to give some consideration to that as well. And I conclude with a few final thoughts in the introduction, just on these foundational concepts. I think one concept that both critical and mainstream approaches are interested in is the concept of identity. And it's actually quite hard to talk about diversity without thinking about identity. The fact that some people feel that they are similar to other people within themselves and this idea of similarity always seems to coexist with diversity. But from a critical perspective, people who view themselves as similar tend to end up viewing other groups or people as other. And this othering, this creation of an other, is often um, a strong indication of, a, of an injustice or, or an oppression or a disadvantage. And so trying to understand those patterns between diversity and similarity is, is almost like an ongoing dance. And sometimes it leads to inclusion, unity, maybe some solidarity, 
but that can be fragile and problematic and just as easily break back down into resistance or conflict or oppression. And so I conclude the introduction by arguing that essentially one message of this book is that, funnily enough, there is a diversity of ways of looking at diversity itself. And actually the ways that we think about diversity and the way we organise those ways we think and look at diversity is an ongoing organisational project. And I hope that it can only be enriched through some of the work I continue to review in some of the subsequent chapters. So thanks for listening to this segment. It was a little bit general and abstract, but I did want to include some of the broad thoughts I had in the introduction of the book. And so next time I will, um, in the next episode, talk about chapter one of the book and dive in a little bit deeper to some of the mainstream approaches to diversity and maybe some critical reflections on the limitations of those approaches. So thank you for listening and see you next time.